let's jump right in with some teaching. I, I am uh, probably going to be quite fluid with the teaching today. There's quite a lot I'd like to get through and, and um, maybe break it up into periods and see what, what the flow uh, sort of suggests. Um, is there anyone who feels pretty new to meditation, uh, insight meditation, etc.? Okay, well, a um, couple of people. So, two things about that. One is um, before lunch, when, before we break for lunch, in the period before lunch, I'll stay in here and be very, very happy to um, try and answer any questions about meditation in particular, anything at all. So, especially if you feel new, but even if you don't feel new. There won't be a lot of material, unlike how I usually try and teach, there won't be a lot of well, there probably won't be a lot of material uh, around around um, uh, me- meditative technique, etc. But there, there may be some. We'll see how it goes. Um, so feel very free if you want. If there's anything about meditation, I want to pitch it at a slightly different level today. So there'll be that group, and anyone can come. But if you're new, feel particularly uh, welcome to come to that and get whatever you, you need. Um, having said that. Um, I think whether you're new or old, there'll be something today that feels that is new to you, uh, no, no matter how experienced you are. Probably guarantee that. Um, and so, you know, partly, like what is the relationship that we have with with new ideas and new material, and how do we think of ourselves and, and our individual practice unfolding into new territory, as yet unexplored territory? How, how do I relate to that personally? And how does the Dharma as a whole relate to moving into what's perhaps uh, new territory to be explored, not not completely figured out, not uh, uh, completely conquered territory? So that's a, a question to uh, maybe run through uh, the back of your mind in, in, uh, as the day goes on for the individual, but for the Dharma as a whole. And maybe uh, with new material, it, it's, it's tricky. You know, sometimes I think uh, guaranteed for some people today, maybe even the majority, I don't know, um, some of what is said, some of what we talk about, maybe a lot of what we talk about, the, the, the most that it can be today is, is like scattering seeds, like sowing seeds. Um, so it might not be the right time for you to take some of these ideas and, and uh, let them germinate inside, or it might be. Um, but either way, it's fine. And if they're just seeds, you can put them on the shelf, take care of them. This is being recorded, etc. There are other recordings, um, and and you can water them when you want. Um, last year, but exactly a year ago, we came. Uh, I came and talked about imaginal stuff as well. Um, I'm not going to repeat too much. This is a huge, huge area, and I'm not. I'm going to repeat sort of the bare minimum. So that also makes it maybe a little bit tricky, but I hope that what I say today will will cohere in itself and stand alone as as a sort of set of teachings. Um, but th- so there'll be a little bit of repetition. There's other material on on the web and in different places if you're interested. Okay. So <laughs> let's let's jump right in and see see how we want to break things down. Over there. Um, Start right away with a problem of vocabulary, okay? Um, 
I've been using words like image and fantasy, and I'll use them interchangeably and perhaps interchangeably also with a word mythos. Um, so these words, image, fantasy, mythos, it's, it, I, I wish there was a better word, and I'm not quite sure that uh, I know what it is, or if, even if there is one. Um, but what do I mean, what do we mean today when we talk about image, fantasy, mythos? What, what are we talking about? Um, and maybe there's a better word, and I don't know. But, um, so rather than try and define that right away, let's um, start with, I'll, I'll um, uh, give a few examples, a range of examples. I choose this, these particular examples, not so much for their sort of entertainment value, but for to exhibit the range and the sort of um, different aspects of what's involved in when I when I use these words, image, fantasy, mythos. And I will repeat many times during the day, in our culture, but even more in our in this meditative culture, the insight meditation culture, fantasy is a is a bad word. It has a lot of negative connotations. I am not using it with a negative connotation. I'm going to say that probably about ten times today. So I do not mean it negatively. I mean something that's actually necessary to us as human beings, necessary to the psyche, to the heart, to, to our, uh, the depth of our humanity, to our path also. Okay, so image, fantasy, mythos, I do not intend them negatively. I intend them as something beautiful, which I'll try and um, unfold. So a few examples, and compare and contrast the different um, examples as they unfold. So uh, sometime in the last couple of weeks, I can't remember, in um, uh, an image that came from me, um, in my own practice, um, sitting down to meditate, and, and this area of the imaginal is, is uh, something I've been exploring quite intently for a few years now. So I, I had the intention to look for an image. Sitting in meditation, and an image appeared sort of evolving in stages, ju- uh, ga- gathering its uh, complexity in stages. A thicket appears, uh, if you know, a hedge trimmed very, very severely, so it's actually quite sharp with jagged edges, appears small in front of me and then, and then around me, so it's surrounding me, and then bursts into flame, like, like, uh, uh, but not consuming the thicket. Uh, and great power in, in, in my body as, this, uh, as the flames erupted. Um, and, then, and then they immediately extinguish. And then this thicket is surrounding me. It feels like it's surrounding us, the imagistic sense. It's surrounding me, and I feel myself enclosed, a little bit imprisoned in this thicket. Um, but then I notice there's, there's a gap in, in, the, in the circumference of this, uh, of this thicket. And so actually I could go in and out. But it still feels something of a prison. Uh, and I'm meditating on this, focusing on the image, very sensitive in, in the, what I call the energy body, we'll talk about this uh, later today, um, very sensitive to the resonances, the nuances, the complexity, the texture of all the emotion and uh, what's associated with the whole thing. And it feels somewhat imprisoned, and there's a, a sense of it being a little bit imprisoned, and then suddenly a little bluebird appears. And it flies into the thicket and uh, appears in front of me. And uh, so touching to the heart. But I don't know what it means. I I can't say it means this or it represents that or this has to do with this or that. Uh, But exquisite uh, and beautiful and deeply touching uh, my heart. And the bluebird was loving me. 
that it came with love, with with a, I say a message of love, but it, it uh, that's not so much a verbal message. It came there, was in the thicket, and then sort of on me a little bit. And there was some uh, communication of the heart between uh, the sense of self and and the bluebird. Um, deep, deeply beautiful, very very moving, um, but but in a subtle way. I could vaguely sense that there was some relationship with things that were going on in my life and emotions, but it, it, it felt like beyond that. It's not something you can put into that box and explain, oh, this relates to this. The visual details of such an image, I could explain to you, oh, the blue bird had a yellow breast, and I could go into the pixelation of its feathers, etc. But that's not where, where we're so much interested in here. It's the nuances and the complexity and the resonances of everything that it suggests to the being and to the psyche. And some of it is just semi-graspable, semi-sensible. Um, so those resonances are difficult to sum up in words. They're difficult to articulate in language or even fully encapsulate in language. So that's one image. Second image, um, reported to me uh, by uh, a student. And this is uh, contrasting because of a number of features. One is it was a series over at least 15 years. So it began about 15 years ago, and this woman uh, used to suffer quite bad periods of depression, very, very down, very dark um, for some <coughs> days. And she was in one of those uh, some years ago, lying on her bed, sort of curled up, and feeling very down, very dark, and suddenly appears um, what she calls a black devil man. So you have the skin of uh, like a black, pitch black snake, uh, featureless, with horns, um, and lying on top of her body, mimicking the contours of her body and oppressing her. And she felt oppressed by this uh, this character, this being, but as if he was squashing. She couldn't move. And there was a real sense of arrogance and pressure and oppression. She felt at the time, he is evil, this is evil. And it really freaked her out. She didn't tell anyone, not her therapist, not no one. And several times over quite some years, but very, very sporadically, this image <coughs> reappeared. Um, and with the same sense, this character, this black devil, was quite arrogant and very oppressive in the sense of really being locked in by something. Um, but gradually, over the years, she was able to move a little bit her body underneath this uh, devil man. And uh, some time ago, uh, she was moving her body very late at night before going to sleep, and she, uh, it ended up that she and the, this black devil man ended up having what she calls wild and furious sex, which she said was completely wonderful and very unexpected. She ends up making love with this devil man, very intense, and then the devil man gets up off her and lets out this huge roaring bellow. And all through that process, over 15 years, he, something had changed, and he was still dark, still intensely powerful, but now an ally, a deeply powerful ally. Something had shifted in the whole relationship with that, uh, and, and also with her depression, in fact. So contrast that because it's a series also because it's pretty dramatic and far out as, as a sort of image. Contrast that with a third one. The image is one of mine, me, on a train. Uh, actually, the train that I take most in my life these days, the train from Newton Abbott, the station near Sky House to Paddington in London. Um, take it a lot. Usually sit in the quiet carriage, try and get a window seat, wearing uh, clothes 
very specific clothes for some reason to the image, clothes that I already have, totally lifelike, totally unremarkable, head leaning on the window. What, the image, though, easily dismissible, was pregnant with all kinds of subtlety and complexity and nuance um, uh, of uh, to do with um, uh, a certain... Uh, what, what was in it was not obvious, but some uh, relationship with a big piece of work that was just finished and the weariness of that, the tiredness of that, um, a restlessness, so resting, but also restlessness, pushing forward into new territories of investigation. So this mixture of resting and restlessness, um, solitude, perhaps loneliness even, um, and underneath it all, uh, peace and happiness. But easily, not uh, none of that was obvious until I went into the image, which was completely unremarkable, and let it fill out. And I was feeling quite weary and perhaps a little bit disconnected from something um, before contacting the image. And then <coughs> contacting that image and, and having it come, come alive, uh, the whole being came alive with energy. Fourth, fourth image. Now this one's quite subtle, even more subtle. Um, maybe I don't know how many people are um, musicians, perhaps, or artists. Okay, so I don't know. It, so I, I used to be a jazz musician, a jazz uh, guitar player, and maybe there's. Well, this might this might apply for an artist in the studio or some something else. It has to do with the materials that you work with. So I know. Uh, playing playing guitar. There's a certain point when you're sort of you begin to get a little bit of mastery of your materials. Mastery. You're learning the language, learning uh, the instrument. It becomes your own. You're making something your own. Meditation is the same. Um, and and at that point, the the way m maybe at certain <coughs> times, the way that you touch the instrument, the way that the hands move on the instrument is extremely subtle, but it's full of something. It's, it, it becomes, I'll come back to this word, there's a soulfulness in the relationship. It's very subtle, but it's in the movement and in, in the subtlety of touch. Or maybe the artist with their paints and the brush and the texture or whatever it is. Um, also wrapped up in that, uh, that moment of image, so still mindful, very present with the sound and, and with the uh, creativity that was happening, very aware, but almost in the background there is... Uh, it's infused, in, in my case, uh, this example, with a sense of particular figures in the jazz tradition. And I was thinking particularly uh, one uh, jazz saxophone player, Dewey Redmond, plays with a certain style. Everything that he meant to me, coming through, translated to a way of moving the fingers. It's in the background, the sense of tradition, of figure, uh, this figure, what that means, everything that's packed into that, how that affects the self in the moment, I'm not lost in fantasy. I'm right there with the sound, present with the moment. It's imbued with something very subtle, amplifying it with meaning. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah. <coughs> but, but very subtle. But so that the image, that's why I said this difficult word, image, what are we talking about? It's not visual. It's uh, tactile, if you like, kinesthetic, kinetic, sonic, something else. And it has to do with the past and, and certain other images in the past. Fourth, fourth example. Um, and, and again, this is a series over a little time. Um, uh, someone shared with me um, 
there appeared to her bursting out of her heart with great force a huge phoenix bird, enormous wingspan, bursting out of her heart, exploding out of her heart, flying away, uh, great power, and coming back and landing on her shoulder, shedding a tear, landed on her breast. And immense healing in that tear uh, uh, of, of the phoenix landing on, on the body. And this was a figure that kept coming back uh, several times. Um, at a certain point it came back, this phoenix, huge bird, and uh, enveloped her in its wings. And in that enveloping was all kinds of love, pregnant with love, with this holding of the being, something very healing happening. Why I mention this image is for, a, for the th- another instance of this particular. So this, this woman was involved in a relationship, we don't need to go into the details, but many, many years ago, decades ago, <coughs> But that relationship lived in the psyche in a very painful way, ongoing. There was a lot of shame involved in in having been in that relationship. I shouldn't have been in that relationship. I let myself get involved with something. It was wrong. And so there was ongoing pain uh, and shame associated with that whole memory of that time. uh, Really quite, quite deep. And then one day in the meditation, this phoenix came and... uh, placed itself or appeared in the memory of of the room uh, of the apartment where she lived with this lover and the bed where they shared the bed and the whole scene exactly how it was um, them on the bed pregnant with the shame but the phoenix is there with its wings outspread and jewels on its wings and the looking into the phoenix and seeing how is the phoenix seeing the situation I see it with shame I cannot see other than through the lenses of shame and I see how the phoenix sees it and the phoenix sees it differently and sees it with love something is healed something is healed of a paradigm (coughs) fifth example I have uh, some good friends they've been married decades okay uh, and they've a very healthy, uh, loving relationship. Um, but I wonder if um, if their intimacy and their loving, um, which is this is not a problem. I'm just trying to expose something. Um, I'm wondering if actually their love and their intimacy is dependent on a fantasy, dependent on a mutual fantasy. Um, and that fantasy is quite a common one in these kind of circles. It's a, it's a fantasy of um, the past, perhaps family, etc., setting up certain patterns um, in, <coughs> in being, in the psyche, that are problematic, that are constricting, that are painful. Um, and so being obstructed by those patterns as one moves uh, into life and through life and then through practice and through psychotherapy, etc., etc., learning to um, open those patterns, heal those patterns, psychological wounds and patterns, and supporting each other in that. So that's a whole, um, what I would call fantasy. There's ideas, in, there's an idea involved in this fantasy, a mutual belief and a mutual seeing, both self and other, in a certain fantasy. It's not bad at all. But 
What if one of them, at some point, decided, you know, I, I don't really believe this anymore. I don't really buy it. I really place the problems we have, for instance, down to socioeconomic or political class causes. And the other is still in the old idea. What would happen to the, their intimacy? Is, is it the case that when we love, part of what supports our love is a, is a mutuality of, of what I call fantasy and ideas are are woven into that, an, an image of self and other in in the current of, of a certain fantasy. Not a problem, not a problem, but just something hmm, that's a, perhaps to be aware of. And if we stay with that theme, a sixth thing, this is something for you to uh, ask yourself or re- reflect a little bit, introspect, if we stay with love. And think about um, sexuality or, or making love or having sex and with someone. And this is a question. Is it not the case that there is something, uh, when, when uh, we are in, in the flow of that and in that and it feels good and it feels right, that there is not something auto-erotic, I don't know if that's the right word, auto-erotic going on, meaning that um, one is, as much as it's about pleasant sensation, it's not just about pleasant sensation. And nor is it about just about loving the other person and caring about them. I mean, certainly those two things are there, but isn't there something else going on as well? Um, is it not that there's a kind of auto-erotic image that one needs to see, sure, sure, I need to see the other as sexy, and have that perception of them, the image of them as a sexy being, but also oneself as sexy. Is that not all the case? There's an auto-erotic sort of background image of oneself as sex. That's part of what um, that's part of what's involved in lovemaking. Again, we say well, that, that sounds egoic or problematic, or is it not just the case and part of what, what goes on? It's interesting uh, for the monks and nuns, uh, certainly in the Theravadan tradition, when you are beset by lust for someone. Um, you're, you're in one of the instructions, if you want to cut the lust, get rid of this hindrance of lust, what's regarded as a hindrance, um, to contemplate the foulness of the body, but not their body, your own body. Why? When I contemplate foulness of the body, I no longer feel myself as, as potentially sexy. And it cuts something, because the, the feeling of, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, sexual arousal, not the right word, but that whole that whole sense is dependent on feeling oneself as sexy. So there's image of self and other in some some particular way. It's not just about the maximizing pleasant sensations. It's certainly not just about being mindful of sensations with bare attention. Um, And neither is it only about melting. I mean, it might be about melting and merging in you. That's one possibility. But is it only that? Or can we not see there are other things going on there? Last one. Um, <clears throat> how many people? How many people have been to Guy House? How many people love Guy House? <laughs> I'm not sure where I would put my hand. <laughs> um, so, if you love Guy House. Is it not the case that Gaia House exists for you? I mean, obviously it's a place in Devon, you can buy a ticket, you get the taxi and you end up at Gaia House, a place, a physical place. But is it not that Gaia House exists for you as a sort of imaginal place as well? 
It's a, it's a place. Um, it's not. It becomes filled with magic if you love it. And magic and imaginal. The roots are the same. Of the word there. Um, so it's not just. I really like Guy House, and you have a list of sort of specific amenities uh, which it satisfies: vegetarian food, tick, yoga room, tick, sometimes, um, <laughs> etc. Et you know, and it's oh, therefore I love Guy House. Something else is coming alive and it exists for you if you really love it as a kind of. It exists in the imagination. The imagination imbues it with a certain life and, and magic. Um, one of my teachers. Uh, uh, I heard so many talks uh, from him about the time when he was a monk in Thailand at a certain monastery. Um, I, I've never been to that monastery. I almost certainly will never go to that monastery. Um, heard so many stories about the hours and hours and hours of walking and standing meditation that they used to do there and the other monks and nuns, etc. That place is alive for me as, as an imaginal place in the psyche. And when I walk and uh, do my walking meditation, standing meditation, sometimes that place and that whole uh, mythic place, if you like, is in the very background of my practice, inspiring. It's infusing the moment and infusing the mindfulness. There is mindfulness, there is all of that, but in the background uh, there's something which gives the, the moment and the whole... Uh, it places me in this tradition of monks and nuns that I've heard about and, and the lineage and everything is something very beautiful so what's happening here is um, image and fantasy can sort of enliven our present <coughs> environment whether that's Guy House or whether that's me or someone in a standing meditation somewhere the, the environment itself gets enlivened through image fantasy this can go to quite some extremes in the western tradition the master of this was William Blake to all, all, all this came very very naturally um, since uh, uh, someone asked him when the sun rises uh, do, do you not see a round disc of fire somewhat like a guinea a, a big golden coin and, and he, he I mean he's playing with them a little bit of course but, but he's saying oh no no I see an innumerable, innumerable company of the heavenly host crying holy 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 is the Lord God almighty <laughs> seeing the present moment differently and there's a capacity to infuse it with something or open to something, see this world differently. Birds for William Blake were angels, angelic beings, portals into another dimension, if you like. In tantric practice, this becomes a deliberate practice. Can you see the world as a mandala or the palace of a deity? Can you see other beings as divine beings? It's actual practice uh, using the imagination. How are you doing? Why don't we just take one minute of silence because there's some more I want to say and I don't want to overload you. So maybe just let this land and ask yourself if any of this is recognizable in, in any, any of your um, experience. Anything like this.
we were talking about something quite broad. The range here is quite broad, and some of it's really quite subtle. So it can be very, very dramatic, very subtle. The uh, and, and and manifest in many different ways. Uh, you've got that sense from the range of examples. The poet Ezra Pound, uh, a great poet, uh, defined an image as that which presents an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant of time. So there's something very condensed, uh, powerfully condensed in what we're calling image or fantasy. It constellates a lot in terms of the resonances of ideas and emotions and or associations, all else, within something uh, that can be instantaneous. If we go back to, uh, or, or draw, drawing out some more common elements from um, that list that I, that of examples, love, love was common to all of them. Love was common to all of those examples. And I would even maybe go so far as to say that where there is love, there there is image or fantasy. Where there is love, there there is image or fantasy. I think I can maybe say that as a rule. Um, and I can almost say the opposite, that where there is image or fantasy, let's say there is at least the potential of love. Let's say that. Um, so love is common to this, but the kinds of love are very, very specific. So the love of that bluebird was very, very particular, very very hard to describe, but very, very uh, precise in its kind of loving. Different than the phoenix enveloping, different than the black devil man, certainly. Um, love was involved in all of them, but the love is particular, uh, particularly and precisely expressed through the image. And then, I would, so that's one thing. Second, they all have what I would call, and this is not a word that we hear much in Dharma at all, but I'm going to use it, Second problem is that word is kind of undefinable. Um, they all have soulfulness. They all have a certain, or give a certain quality of soulfulness. Now, what does that mean? And what do I mean by that? Hard to totally encapsulate, but something about this pregnancy with 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 different resonances. Uh, multiplicity of resonances that move the being uh, at different levels in different ways. Um, with pregnant with meaningfulness, which is different than meaning this or that. Meaningfulness is, is more open. Um, they have a sense of depth to them. They have a sense of not being able to box them in. Um, they have love, as I said. <coughs> beauty, also particular kinds of beauty are involved in all of them. And they do something to the self. The self is expanded in particular ways beyond its usual notion of itself. So it's that primarily that makes something, whatever language we're going to use, an image or fantasy or mythos. It's that quality of giving rise to soulfulness that makes it an image or fantasy in the language that I'm using. So that what that means is that when I say image, fantasy, mythos, I'm including not just the bluebird, the object, but the whole perspective of, of it, the whole way of looking at it, the whole relationship with it and conceptual framework that's related to it. So if there's a conceptual framework that helps to give rise to this kind of soulfulness, the poet John Keats talked about, talked about soul-making. So you're not using soul as some kind of entity, but soul-making. We make soulfulness by entering into certain relationship uh, kinds of relationship with things. 
Um, so when the perspective gives rise to that, that whole thing, the object and the way of looking, are, are, are what we call image. That's what I'm calling image. But some people want to say, well, anything can be an image, or there's always an image. I, I'm tempted to say that, but I probably would rather say now instead, potentially everything can be an image. It depends whether whether something invigorates it that way or is invigorated. So the relationship with the conceptual framework, the eidos, that Greek word e-i-d-o-s, which our word idea comes from that word eidos, and it's that you look through an idea, it's related to the way we see. So the way we see, the conceptual framework, um, is part of the image, gives rise to whether it's an image or not. It's not uh, this image is not separate from the conceptual uh, framework and, and the way of relating. A dream image, or, or a dream in itself, is nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's not yet what I would call an image. It's just a dream event or something. Because unless it's been, unless it comes to life in a certain way. Are you guys okay? Can I speak for five or ten more minutes? Is it, is it okay? <coughs> um, let's draw out a few more uh, aspects of, of, of to, to sort of highlight what we're talking about here. First, sometimes we're not aware, uh, maybe oftentimes we're not aware of what's operating for us as human beings as image, fantasy, mythos. And I think I used this example last year. Holy war. Holy war uh, is, you could say, an archetypal image. It's something maybe that for human beings, for some people, is a, is a necessary thing. If I'm not aware of it as image, then I take it literally, and I don't realize what's operating, and I actually wage holy war. And so, those years ago, Osama bin Laden declares holy war, jihad on the West. It's literalized. And then, a little while later, uh, President George W. Bush declares, what was he calling it, a war on evil, or what, what a war on whatever it was. Whatever. It, it's the, the notion of it was also as a righteous holy war. Everyone buys into this. It's an archetypal image, not realized as, as being... We're not aware of what's operating in us as image, as fantasy, and we're just plugged into something and taking it literally. So sometimes we're aware, oftentimes we're not. Um, second thing. As a human being, I can move in the world and in relationship to things and people and situations in many different ways. If I move uh, towards or away from something or some person, or what, and really, all my my movement is coming just seeking to increase pleasure, <coughs> pleasant sensations, and decrease unpleasant sensations. In the language that I'm using, that's lacking in soul. It's lacking in soulfulness. I'm just chasing pleasant sensations and trying to avoid unpleasant sensations. Third thing, and I touched on this before, that um, image fantasy are—they're not interpretable singularly. I cannot say this is the definition of this. This is what this means. There's something about them that's infinite, something bottomless in them. I cannot explain them. That word "explain" is related to plain, making flat. I cannot explain, <coughs> make this thing flat. If I do, I kill it or its nature is not to be fully explained. 
we say, I say, it's only perhaps alive for me soulfully if it has that infiniteness, that unreachable depth to it. I can get some of it, but it's not fully graspable. Uh, if I, I don't know, what, what's a classic image from the culture? The burning bush, the, 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 the bush that Moses saw that didn't, um, uh, was aflame a but didn't go out. Or, or, or the crucifixion, or the resurrection. Th- those images are so uh, dead by now in the culture for most people. They're almost, they're just, they don't register at all. But, but we cannot take an image like that and say, it represents this. The res- resurrection represents this. Um, I mean, you could, but then you kill something. And when we do that, we're usually interpreting it according to some system. Um, and here's the word difficulty. If I use the word symbol... S Y M B O L. Maybe that's a word of something that means something else. This symbolizes X. X symbolizes Y. Um, but that's not what we're talking about so much today. Um, Moshe Idel is a scholar of um, uh, Jewish mysticism. He says symbols or images rarely maintain their freshness, ambiguity, and elusive characteristics. There's something inherently ambiguous and inherently multiply eluding. Uh, They rarely maintain their freshness, ambiguity, and elusive characteristics when they become integrated into a more elaborate and detailed structure. There's something about these, what's imaged, that's open-ended, ongoing. At a certain stage, it might come to mean something for me. It means this. The phoenix means this, perhaps. But only for a while. And then it opens up again if it's really alive. Fourth, and last thing for now, um, there is anyone, and you may recognize in yourself, anyone who (coughs) feels something this way will say to you um, in their own language, there is a truth here for me. This image expresses a truth. There's a reality to it. But here, here, and I'm going to come back to this today, truth, reality, these, these are, we're usually too simplistic in how we relate to those words, much too simplistic, our notions of truth and reality, so simplistically black and white. But anyone who, who has experienced this kind of thing, there's a truth here for me, there's a reality for the individual. So often in our culture, in the dominant paradigm of our culture, that it's not true or real unless it's publicly shared. If you can see it too, if everyone in this room can see that phoenix, then it's real, and then it's true. But if it's individual, it's not. It's not uh, a socially agreed upon reality or truth either. We don't generally in this culture believe in this uh, reality, whatever kind of reality that is. So generally we tend to think about truth and reality. It needs to be publicly shared, socially agreed on, hopefully kickable. Solid, materiable, uh, material, to quote Dr. Johnson. Uh, measurable, even better, um, than it's in the scientific paradigm, etc. And hopefully secular. Uh, and, then, and then we say, this is true or real. But actually, maybe there's a kind of truth, a kind of reality. It's, it's, it's a different kind. I'm going to come back to this later. But to stop now. Images are more than emotions. There's more going on there in terms of... Uh, if I'm mindful of an emotion, uh, there's more complexity and more nuance in an image. Much more. It's much more subtle and more pregnant. Um, it's also more than an idea. Okay? And again, to quote Ezra Pound, so involves emotions, involves ideas, but 
condensed constellation. Um, Ezra Pound said, an image is more than an idea, more than a concept. It is a vortex or cluster of fused ideas and is endowed with energy, a vortex from which and through which and into which ideas are constantly rushing. So there's something uh, complex here. So what does that have to do with Dharma? How does the Dharma um, input into all that? How does all that uh, input or influence or shed light on our, our Dharma practice? And that's what I want to go into today. But that's enough for now. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.